0: Hello? Dr. Jessup? Anybody here?
1: Well, hello, good sir. I'm glad to see you have arrived. I apologize I can't be there to greet you in person, but... Please know that I am most appreciative of your attendance. So hard to find good volunteers these days. It's it's as if every undergraduate with even a bit of backbone has simply vanished in the past six months.
0: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay, so am I in the right place?
1: Ah, well, perhaps instead you should ask whether you were in the right time.
0: Uh-huh, well the flyer said you were doing uh six twenty five an hour for test subjects in something called Middle Cambrian Exposure. Not sure what that is, but uh if you're paying cash, I'm still on board.
1: Excellent. Now tell me, do you have any experience with time displacement?
0: Don't think so.
1: Of course not. Of course not. Uh and tell me, can you swim?
0: You know, I can, but it's one of those things, I wouldn't say I'm a great swimmer.
1: (laughs) Well, nobody's perfect. Now, do do you see the throbbing lightness vortex in the uh, center of the room there?
0: Well, yeah. Yeah, I do. Excellent.
1: Go to it.
0: Alright.
1: Yes, yes. Closer, closer. Something,
0: Something doesn't feel right. What's that feeling?
1: Ah, what's the matter, my little vertebrate? Haven't you ever wanted to feel 500 million years younger?
0: What is that? Is that that an ocean? My God, it's like the whole planet's an ocean. It's full of monsters.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, that was obviously a reference to some kind of journey we may be taking to the Cambrian period.
1: Uh, that's right. Yeah, we had a little cameo by uh, the, the, the late, great uh, Anton Jessup. W-
0: late? Did he die? I don't
1: know. I mean, there there are rumors of his death, uh, but who knows for sure.
0: They always exaggerate yeah. those. Well, anyway, today I've got a little story I want to tell to lead us into our topic. Now, obviously, it is October. It's our favorite time of year to talk about monsters. We talk mm-hmm. about monsters anyway, but this is the time where we really double down on Yeah, the we monsters. have a clear mandate for monsters. And I got to take a monster science adventure this past month. So this, this past month, early on one Sunday morning, my wife, Rachel, and I were in Canada, and we woke up before dawn on this Sunday morning in the town of Golden, British Columbia. It's in Western Canada in the okay. Canadian Rockies. And we had some coffee and bagels, and we filled up our backpacks with a bunch of layers of warm clothes, bottles of water, all that hiking stuff. And we drove along these steep mountainsides to this tiny town called Field in British Columbia. And there we parked beside a gas station, and we waited to meet our guide and the rest of this tour group. So the guide was a paleontologist named David, and the hiking group was mostly French-speaking families, some really lovely people, and some very intelligent children with great questions like, why do animals die? (laughs) Uh, And so we hiked through the town of Field and along this uphill path through the forest up the side of Mount Stephen. And as we went on throughout the day, the trail got steeper and steeper, and we could see through the trees the town we came from was becoming this tiny miniature model in the distance. And then right around midday, we came out of the tree line, and we walked up on this bare plain of flat rocks. And they were pieces of the underlying shale formation that had chipped and broken off, and they'd gathered in this relatively flat part of the mountainside. And on this plain of rocks, you walk around, and you pick up these mineral fragments, and they're full of fossils. It's just fossils everywhere. Almost every other rock you find has the shape of an animal from millions of years ago printed into it. You're literally walking on thousands and thousands of fossils. Oh, wow. So you're in this this mountainous environment.
1: And David, who, by the way, I'm picturing as the android from uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, is guiding you and showing you these uh, these prehistoric remnants in the rock.
0: David was not... Michael Fassbender, but David (laughs) was excellent. He was a really, really good guide. And this place we came to where we were walking on fossils, this was the Mount Stephen trilobite beds. It is a graveyard of organisms from the Cambrian period about 500 million years ago. Now, Mount Stephen is in an area that's home to the Burgess Shale Geological Formation, which is one of the most important sites of Cambrian period fossils in the world. And if you ever get a chance to do one of these hikes, I highly, highly recommend it. I think it literally might be the coolest thing I've ever done. Uh, you have to book them through this organization called the Burgess Shale Geoscience Foundation, and they pair you with a guide. Our guide, David the Paleontologist, was an excellent science communicator. He was really good with the kids on the group, and he was a great hiking guide. So if you get a chance to go with David, big thumbs up to him. Uh, Be warned, if you do try to do this, it's a tough hike. It's like eight kilometers round trip horizontally with a 795 meter elevation gain which is like uh, 2600 feet and uh, and that's starting at like 1200 or 1300 meters of elevation at the at the base of the mountain. Uh so the air is thin and it's worth doing some other hikes at higher elevation to get yourself accustomed to the lack of oxygen, but I also don't want to scare you too much. Obviously, I will I am no kind of athlete or experienced Altitude hiker or anything like that and I survived. So. So You're advising listeners to wear their best flip-flops on this particular (laughs) hike. Just be prepared. Have some layers, have some water, do a little practice. If you can make the trip, it, it is absolutely worth it to see these fossils firsthand. You can pick them up. You can feel the ribs of these Cambrian organisms. You can you can feel the contours of their bodies as they printed on this ancient shale. Uh, but also, it's really cool to be there just because the area around Field, including uh, Mount Stephen trilobite beds and the Burgess Shale quarry, Quarries, are just arguably the most important Cambrian fossil sites in the world. They're a geological window into... Uh a, a time stranger, I would argue, than any alien planet in any movie, any book, any video game, any Star Trek episode. I think the real alien monsters uh, and of course, as you if you know, the show, you know, we use the, mo- the term monster affectionately. Mm-hmm. It's not a pejorative. Uh, the real alien monsters are not out there on some exoplanet. They were right here. Five hundred million years ago, and in this one amazing place, you can sort of crunch through their frozen graveyard, and it's awesome.
1: Now, Joe, do you find yourself falling into the the same admittedly dumb trap that I do when I when I think about? Uh, about the the nationalities uh, that are sort of uh, overlaid regarding uh, uh, fossil uh, uh, finds. Oh, uh, like
0: uh, these are Canadian Cambrian monsters? Yeah, or something like that.
1: Like, yeah, because I was recently reading to my son about pterosaurs, and was reading about the about the about Bavarian fossils of pterosaurs. Uh-huh. And is is as silly as it is? Uh-huh. I couldn't help but but think of of Bavarian pterosaurs thinking about p- b- Bavarian right. prehistoric creatures They're like wearing lederhosen yeah. with a big uh, big stein of beer and it's so unfair you know I've done the same thing thinking of Mongolian uh, fossil finds in our previous episode we talked about uh, various raptors I believe uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was the velociraptor or uh, Denonicus but uh, I, I could not help but then think about them in terms of like human history regarding that
0: area right and then like kind of slap myself ran with for Genghis doing it Khan. yeah yeah <laughs> Part of his pack. Uh Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that does highlight the need to sort of explain how the Cambrian world was so different than our world, not mm-hmm. just that it had different animals in it, but that planet Earth was different then. So when I say it was an alien planet, I mean that quite literally. It's not just that it had different fauna. Yeah. it was a it was a totally different place to live and so before we get into exploring these monsters of the cambrian period these beautiful and bizarre creatures that you couldn't even dream up if you tried i think we should take a look at the cambrian period itself and and explain what it was like to be terra 500 million years ago so the Cambrian period lasted from about 540 to about 485 million years ago. And if you were dropped from today straight into the Cambrian period, you would not recognize planet Earth. The Earth, for one thing, revolved faster than it does now. So days were only about 21 hours long and there were about 420 of them in a year. Huh. The air would be hot, so the average global surface temperature would have been about 10 degrees Celsius hotter than today. That's a good bit hotter. The atmosphere, while it did have significant free oxygen at this point, was not quite what it is today. It would have felt a little bit thick with carbon dioxide in your lungs. If you happen to see dry land, it would probably look more like the surface of Mars than Earth today, because land-dwelling plants didn't exist yet. It's kind of hard to imagine earth that way mm-hmm. and without plant roots to hold the soil in place land surfaces eroded very easily in the wind and the churning water so you know the the continents are constantly just kind of burning away into the oceans and being reformed
1: so to call back to a previous episode we did was this was definitely a, a world before fire oh yeah yeah because what would it what would it burn right yeah
0: i mean I can't be sure it was totally without fire, but, I mean, yeah, obviously not fire on the scale we see of wildfires mm-hmm. in forests today because there was oxygen in the atmosphere at this point. But, yeah, what what would burn? What would the fuel be? Right.
1: All right. So we have this alien world with just a barren land when visible, and then we have this this ocean, this right. strange ocean.
0: And the Cambrian Earth, that that's not a story about land at all. That is a story about ocean. It mm-hmm. was the ocean planet at that point. You could probably make the argument it's the ocean planet right now, but it definitely was then. According to Cambrian Ocean World, Ancient Sea Life of North America by John Foster, uh, the the level of the seas rose steadily in this sawtooth rise and fall pattern throughout the Cambrian period. So at the beginning of the period, sea level was actually a little bit lower than it is today. But by the end of the late Cambrian Sea level was about 160 meters or 530 feet higher than it is today. So in today's terms, New York, underwater, Rome, underwater, Paris, underwater, Baghdad, underwater, even parts of Moscow, underwater. Oh, wow. And the high sea level in the Cambrian led to flooding of about 40 percent of the area of Earth's continental masses. Compare that to today where only about 5% of that continental area is covered in water. So most of our planet's dry land mass was gathered together closer to the South Pole, and the continent that became North America was then called Laurentia, not then called by people who lived (laughs) then, but people today called that continent, then Laurentia. And you sort of have to imagine North America turned sideways, mostly flooded, straddling the equator, also adding to the alien quality. In the Cambrian, astronomy would have been a little bit different. So the moon was more than 20,000 kilometers closer to Earth then, meaning that its hmm. gravity was stronger, meaning the high and low tides on Earth were higher and lower. Ah. Okay, you know,
1: my son was just talking to to me the other day about the the size of the moon
0: in prehistoric times. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he knew that the moon was bigger in prehistoric times.
1: Yeah, and uh, and knows that it'll be it will be smaller in future times. Uh,
0: did he intuit that, or did he find that out somewhere? He he consumes a lot of, uh,
1: like, dinosaur train, and uh, he really likes this podcast Wow in the World. It's a great science podcast for for kids. So, and then you know I. We talked to him a lot about science.
0: But. Man, I wish I was that cool when I was a kid. <laughs> I probably just would have told you about, like, which ninja turtle was bigger in the prehistoric <laughs> times.
1: Yeah, so far. Ninja turtles will probably come in and wash it all away. Soon. Yeah. But
0: for now, he's really, really into the science. Like an alien ocean driving <laughs> away the continents. Okay. So if we looked under that ancient ocean, that's where the real craziness co- comes in. Because we would find this vast realm of gorgeous, terrifying, surreal monsters that would look completely unlike the kind of Earth life we're familiar with today. Because the Cambrian period is the geologic layer where we see evidence of one of the most fascinating and mysterious events in the history of life on Earth known as the Cambrian explosion. So, explosion. What exploded? Was this like a bunch of volcanoes or something? No, the Cambrian explosion is a story about biodiversity. So, Robert, how old is the Earth? Oh, it's, uh, what, four and a half billion years old? Yeah, that's the general astronomical idea. Hmm. So four and a half billion years old, we've had this planet roughly. And we know there's been single-celled life on the planet for at least maybe three and a half billion years or so based on uh, fossil traces left behind by these organisms. And new findings keep pushing the debatable frontier of earliest life farther and farther back into the darkness of Earth time. One example I just came across the other day, just earlier this year, in March 2017, there was an article published in Nature arguing that apparent microbe fossils in the Nouveau-Agatouk belt in Quebec are about 3.8 billion and possibly 4.3 billion years old, somewhere in that range. And these single-celled life forms would have been surviving around hydrothermal vents and had this biochemistry based on eating and excreting iron. That's pretty rough and tumble. That's like a comic book villain, (laughs) right? Yeah. uh, The Iron Eater. And the crazy thing is that if these findings are correct, life on Earth would have began within just a few hundred million years of the planet first accreting together in space. It's kind of hard to believe. But whether life on Earth began like 4.2 billion years ago or more recently, we know that for a long, long time, life on Earth wasn't becoming much more complex, right? There was no serious multicellular life, so no animals, no fish and reptiles, no birds, no plants, no mushrooms, just microbial organisms like bacteria and archaea floating around in the oceans, forming mats and films, and occasionally occasionally building these giant mineral brains in the surf called stromatolites. So this
1: would be – if this were a science fiction film, this would be the, the, the least cinematic uh alien life form encounter unless it made people like you know horribly sick obviously yeah. or possess them <laughs> uh, biofilm planet yeah yeah the planet of slime yeah this will be the episode of of star trek that that does not, does not make it to uh, to the series.
0: Yeah, and that's, you know, th- that would have been the story of Earth for most of Earth's history. Mm-hmm. Not having any kind of interesting animals or anything like that. Not to say that microbes aren't interesting in themselves, but maybe less interesting to look at. It would have been Slime Planet. Yeah, generally this is
1: the stuff that occupies one, maybe two pages of a, of a large prehistoric life book yeah. before you get on to the, the more exciting things. The things that children can imagine fighting each other.
0: But it's most of the life that's (laughs) And then billions of years later, at the beginning of the Cambrian period, something happens very suddenly. Loads of insane animals show up. And when I say suddenly, I have to qualify that. That's suddenly from a geological point of view, which in reality means it took millions of years, about Mm -hmm. 540 million years ago to about 500 million years ago. But that's still pretty sudden compared to the age of the Earth and this geologically rapid spike in animal diversity delivers creatures with bilateral symmetry with large bodies with eyes with legs with shells with segmented body parts you've got all of these crazy different types of creatures suddenly showing up and it's like where did they all come from
1: yeah it's like all these prototypes are rolled out at once it's like the segment in is it is it RoboCop 1 or 2 where we get all the crazy prototypes that, uh,
0: oh, that's ro- RoboCop too. Yes, yeah. It, it, One of our favorite <laughs> points of comparison on the show for biology.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. You have suddenly all these different, you know, seemingly crazy examples of life, and and many of many of which don't seem to to fall in easily into that category of well, this is a precursor to something we have later on. It's so a precursor to something we have
0: today. Now, of course, for some people with negative attitudes towards evolutionary science, this provides some kind of rhetorical ammunition, right? Indeed. I mean, the explosion is
1: often exploited by evolution deniers. Even Darwin, uh, we have to note, thought that the explosion was at odds with the normal evolutionary process.
0: Which in a funny way could be true, but not in the way an evolution denier would mean. So a couple of thoughts. Evolution, as we're familiar with it today, tends to take place within ecosystems in which every niche is already filled. Mm -hmm. So basically every way there is for a creature to make a living, there's already something trying to do that. So if you want to compete, you've got to outcompete these other organisms. The global ocean of the Cambrian on the other hand represented a world in which it seems like there was still tremendous ecological opportunity to occupy like there was territory in the ecology that didn't have any existing competition so it was a time in which an animal could start doing something to eat or to otherwise survive and no other species was already doing that thing there was just sort of like free land to grab
1: yeah like yeah land grab call the frontier uh, except without other organisms already occupying it.
0: So that there could be one explanation for why evolution seems to be working differently at this one period in history than it has since. But also, the young Earth creationist who exploits ongoing debates in biology to sort of uh, resort to the supernatural, we, they're employing a fallacy in rhetoric known as the argument from ignorance fallacy, which means like, I don't know what caused something, therefore the cause is right. X. Uh, example, you don't know who committed the Jack the Ripper murders. Therefore, it was interdimensional Sasquatches. (laughs) Now, uh, the version employed here, of course, says you can't all agree. We don't know on what caused the sudden or geologically sudden biodiversity of the Cambrian explosion. Therefore, the cause is supernatural. Now, this line of thinking obviously doesn't get you anywhere once you examine it, but the disagreement and debate over the cause is a fascinating, outstanding question, and it's something I think we want to entertain a few uh, answers to today. Now, some of the hypotheses are primarily environmental and chemical, right? So some scientists have proposed that the cause of the Cambrian explosion could be a rise in the content of oxygen in the atmosphere, which leads to an increase in the level of dissolved oxygen in the oceans. Now, of course, remember that Earth's original atmosphere did not have free oxygen, right? That was added to the atmosphere gradually as a waste product of photosynthesis. So you have all these microbes out there, and they're eating the sunlight, and then they're geoengineering the atmosphere with their waste products, which included oxygen. This is the gradual natural terraforming of our world. Yeah, Yeah, the microbial terraforming of Earth, which absolutely did happen in the past, and that's where we get our oxygen, now, when you think about it, large, fast-moving animals need lots of oxygen to feed their energy-hungry tissues. Like, think of the way that when you move your muscles a lot, your body starts greedily gulping down more and more air. In the same way, if you think about these organisms in the past suddenly you wanted to have organisms with large bodies they would have needed access to oxygen so maybe when that oxygen became available suddenly you could build these big fast moving bodies and you get all this animal biodiversity okay
1: so previously the the oxygen economy would not support this kind of growth.
0: Right. But the idea is then it would. Mm -hmm. So did a sudden increase in oxygen drive the explosion? Well, some recent studies have cast doubt on this hypothesis, including one published in Nature in 2015 by Sperling et al. uh, And it basically did not find evidence of a significant increase of oxygen in ocean water at the beginning of the Cambrian. So evidence shows that if there was an increase in oxygen at the Cambrian transition, it was kind of a small one. All right. Well, what else do we have? Well, other hypotheses are more biological and ecological. Like, what if there was one type of biological innovation, some new way for animals to make a living, or new thing animals could do that rapidly accelerated competition within ecosystems, which would speed up natural selection and cause new species to form much more rapidly? How about the example of sight? Oh, yeah, this is a big one. Yeah, so previous animals, they might have had some kind of photosensitive spots or receptors that would have allowed them to, for example, move toward the sunlight. But the Cambrian is the first period in history where we have evidence of complex sight organs, you know, eyes. It's the age of organisms with compound eyes. So imagine how much adaptive pressure would be put on you if you lived in a world where all creatures were basically blind, and then suddenly some of your competitors could see.
1: Yeah, this is a, this is a crazy thing to try to imagine. But, yeah, just, just think of sight coming online in a world... Uh, and and all the additional stuff that this entails. Suddenly, pigmentation begins to matter. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to even apply. One is tempted to apply this to a human arms race, um, which is which is often a, an, an apt uh, comparison. But I mean, what can we even look to in human technology and human weapon systems? I mean, I was thinking maybe you could apply it. Uh, you can compare it to flight and say that well, once once human technology allowed us to take to the air that created an entire new uh, uh theater of war and it right. also changed the existing theaters of war.
0: And I think you could make that comparison pretty well like flight changed the nature of warfare forever. Mm-hmm. Like suddenly just having like lots of ground troops didn't didn't matter a whole lot. Right, but this this
1: seems more extensive than that, you know. It's like uh it it's it's the opening of another dimension of, uh, of competition in a way.
0: Yeah. And yeah. And you think so. You, you mentioned pigmentation. Mm-hmm. Suddenly the the colors you are matter, like blending in matters. But also think about the way it would make movement matter. Mm-hmm. It would make the shapes of bodies matter. It would just completely change all the dynamics of how creatures interacted with one another.
1: Yeah. Not only prey predator uh, interactions, but of course, just uh, interspecies uh, communication uh, and as well as uh, mating, et I mean, everything changes because of this.
0: Yeah. So we'll come back to look at more of these answers to this question uh, throughout the episode. But I think we should take our first break. And then when we come back, we will look at one of the first major inhabitants of our Cambrian monster house. Alright, we're back. So as we roll through these, I also want everyone to think uh, of
1: potential Halloween costume ideas. Oh. Because I think we have some, we have some wonderful prehistoric uh, monsters here that I think our more inventive listeners might be able to, to turn
0: into a mask or a full body costume. Okay, so I want you Starship Troopers fans out there <laughs> to get a little bit excited about Stonebug Planet. Okay. So, fans of the book or the, the movie? Well, I mean, they both got bugs. That's true. Okay, so in 1886, There's a Canadian geologist by the name of Richard McConnell, and he's visiting the town of Field, the same town I went to when I uh, began the walk up uh, Mount Stephen, Field, British Columbia, where some railroad workers told him they had found something creepy on the slopes of (laughs) nearby Mount Stephen. They were these things that they called, quote, stone bugs. And these were, in fact, trilobites, the best known inhabitants of the Cambrian Oceans. Now, trilobites are not a single species, but they're a class of extinct animals from the phylum Arthropoda. And so that would be the same phylum that includes, for example, insects and crustaceans, lobsters are arthropods, insects and spiders are arthropods, these exoskeleton creatures. Now, trilobites were an enormously successful form of life, beginning in the Cambrian and surviving for about 300 million years until they were wiped out about 250 million years ago. In the Permian-Triassic extinction event, also known as the Great Dying, which was the biggest mass extinction in the history of planet Earth, about 95 percent of all marine species went extinct. It's kind of hard to imagine. Yeah. But until then, trilobites were like, sort of like the insects of today, just this enormously successful uh, type of creature found everywhere. They were a swarm upon the face of the deep, or as I, I kind of want to think of them as the infinity bugs. Ha, huh, I like it. So the trilobite body structure kind of resembles like a roly-poly or a pill bug, uh, maybe crossed with a horseshoe crab. It's got these articulated segments lining its back, and if you look at it from the top down, you'll see this flat hard shell made of a matrix of tiny calcite needles and if you look at it on the vulnerable underside you'll see the legs and the gills and the mouth and actually it does kind of look like a like a roly poly or a pill bug on the underside too if you ever see them
1: yeah i have to say the trilobite of all the creatures we're going to discuss today well first of all it's the most famous i think so most of you have probably seen images of it before mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it also does look a lot more like uh, existing creatures. It doesn't. If you, if you if you didn't know better, you could easily see an image of this and think that it could be something living today.
0: Yeah, I think the creepiness of of the trilobite world comes not from uh, seeing their body plans, because you can see stuff that looks kind of like them, mm-hmm. like you say. It's just how many of them there were and thinking of this being one of the dominant body plans on the planet yeah, or and the dominant body plan on the planet.
1: And if you're still drawing a blank as to what this looks like, I'm going to include images of, of all the species that we're discussing here on the landing page for this episode. It's stuff to blow your mind dot com. All right. So we've had a look at the creature's legs. Mm-hmm. Let's turn this puppy around. <laughs>
0: Okay, turn it. So if you look at it from the top down, you can basically divide a trilobite in three both ways. So if you look at it lengthwise, you're Mm -hmm. looking at it head-on lengthwise. There is bilateral symmetry, and this is – in the Cambrian period, we see these animals with bilateral symmetry really taking over. You can fold them in half, and they're like a book. They match on both sides. And uh, in that lengthwise direction, the trilobite is divided into three lobes. You've got the axial lobe, which runs down the middle from the head to the tail, kind of like the spine of the book or mm-hmm. like the spine of a vertebrate. And then you've got the two pleural lobes on each side, which are shielding the legs from above. There were these, you know, shelled lobes stick out on the side, to, and they cover up where the legs would be moving underneath. Now you rotate at 90 degrees, and then you've got another three sections. You've got the head, known as the cephalon, the middle section, known as the thorax, and the rear section, known as the pygidium. Now, one thing you might wonder, why do we see these articulated segments on the shell of a trilobite? Like, why doesn't it have something more like a big, solid turtle shell? You know, why why the different Hmm. plates overlapping? Yeah. Well, there are multiple answers, but one is that apparently some trilobites were able to partially curl up and protect their Ah. soft underbellies like an armadillo or a pill bug. Yeah, or roly-poly. Yeah. Yeah. It, so do you do you use the word pill bug or roly poly? I, I think they're the same thing. They, they are. Not? Yes, I believe they're the okay. same
1: creature or the same um, you know classification of creatures at, at the very least. Uh, but yeah, I grew up with roly poly.
0: I, I think I did too. And somehow in my adulthood transition to pill bug, <laughs> I've sold out my childhood wonder. <laughs> it's, it does sound significantly less silly. Well, anyway, trilobite fossils are – that's what you're walking on in the Mount Stephen trilobite beds, right? So you walk around, you crunch through these things, you pick up these rocks, and they've got these little shells in them. And the trilobite fossils are so common, you can get the sense that these animals must have been stacked a mile high when they actually existed, right? Right. There were a lot of them in the Cambrian, but uh, they're perhaps overrepresented in the fossil record because many of the fossilized shells we find are not the animals themselves, huh. but the discarded shells left over from the molting process. Okay. So like arthropods today, trilobites were hemmed in by this protective shell. And if they wanted to grow bigger, they mm-hmm. had to molt. Which meant discarding that protective outer layer and temporarily risking a soft-bodied existence in order to grow that larger, harder shell.
1: It would be like a if there were a prehistoric um, hominid creature that left multiple skeletons behind, you know, <laughs> which is of course impossible. But with an exoskeleton, is uh, is complete is is very possible.
0: Well, the vulnerability of molting makes me think about the comparison to a human newborn. You know, mm-hmm. when when babies are born, they don't necessarily have all their their hard uh, protective skeletal parts. Yet, and you have a lot of uh, uh, unfused together. The unfused skull, for example, and the soft uh, cartilaginous body parts, where you you really do make yourself vulnerable when you're first born. But of course, they're depending on the fact that mammals have protective parents that'll try to prevent injury to their offspring when they're young and vulnerable. Trilobites, I don't know if they're they're quite so protective of their young.
1: (laughs) I mean, you could say that puberty is kind of a molting period where. where, where we tend to be uh, soft and vulnerable, if not in uh, if not in mentally body, at least yeah. mentally, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so that's interesting to, to to think of the the molting process having an impact on the sheer number of, uh, of fossilized remains. But but then on top of that, of course, it makes you analyze, uh, and we've discussed this on the show before. Like what makes a creature uh, more liable. Uh, to be fossilized. Right. And I mean, you look at the creatures that are fossilized in any great number, it's not going to be an apex predator living in a dry region. It's going to be something like a low level
0: invertebrate that lives in the muck. Yeah. Something that gets buried quickly Mm -hmm. uh, and that leaves behind hard body parts near water, especially.
1: Right. So the great, the great land squid of old. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Have not been preserved. (laughs) but their beaks
0: are many. Oh yes, that's right. We would get the beaks. Yeah, these beds of beaks <laughs> and we'd wonder what they are. Uh yeah, but because there are so many trilobite fossils and because they're so strange and so alien to the the modern life forms we encounter in our day-to-day lives. I mean, they might be, they might bear some resemblance to insects for example, right? And this is why a railroad worker might call them stone bugs. Mm-hmm. But it's no surprise that they show up in human culture too. I wanted to mention one cool example I came across. Uh, remember Adrian Mayer, who wrote the first fossil hunters? We talked about her in our uh, in our uh, what was it the the geomythology episode? Yes,
1: yes. This this had to do with how did ancient people look at uh, fossilized remains? Did they right. think they were monsters? Did they think they were dragons? Yeah,
0: yeah. And did did these ideas of mythical monsters come from people finding fossils? Mm-hmm. Uh, So she's got another book called Fossil Legends of the First Americans. And she writes of how trilobite fossils were apparently used as protective amulets by some of the Ute people of Utah. So this one story is that in the early 1900s, there was an amateur natural historian named Frank Beckwith. And he noticed a trilobite necklace at a Ute burial site. So he asked some friends of his named Joseph and Tedford Pickyavit, who were members of the tribe, what this meant and they told him that the fossil was called Timpe Kanitsa Pavachi, which meant little water bug in stone. And Beckwith also records that the men told him that their elders believed that wearing the trilobites could protect against sickness and bullets. Hmm. But I thought that's kind of cool that look somehow the fossils were intuited to have been water dwelling creatures. And I wonder how people would have figured that out back then. I I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, especially given
1: that there would be, there would be plenty of terrestrial, uh, invertebrates to compare it to. I guess maybe right. they, maybe they saw more of the, uh, of the crab in this creature than they did, uh, you know, terrestrial bugs. Yeah. I know. I,
0: know I wouldn't have been that perceptive. I would have called it like roly-poly or something. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Huh. <laughs> well, anyway, considering that all these there are all these shells everywhere, another possible answer to the question of what caused the Cambrian explosion comes up. What if the Cambrian explosion is an illusion? Hmm. What if it is not so much an event in history where all these animals suddenly emerged, but a misperception created by the types of evidence available to us? So this would be like a reporting error. Exactly. It would be a sampling bias. How would that be? Well, like we've been talking about, we know fossilization has this serious preference for hard body parts. And it appears to be around the Cambrian period that biomineralization, right, the forming of these mineral-based body parts like skeletons and shells, that that became common in many different animals. It's the age of shells and exoskeletons. So it could be that many animal forms had precedent in the pre-Cambrian era, that there were, there were animals sort of like them living before, and it's simply that we don't have good records of them because they weren't making hard body parts yet.
1: Hmm. Okay, so this makes sense. So it's not it's it's not that just suddenly there are all these creatures around with their hard shells. There were plenty of creatures around beforehand. It's just those were not preserved. Those are not as present in the fossil record.
0: Right, because they didn't have the hard shells. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, even soft animals leave some fossil traces, like tracks and mm-hmm. burrows. And generally, I think uh, paleontologists think that these types of fossils are not as abundant as they would seem to be if the pre-Cambrian world was basically a soft, flappy copy of the Cambrian. But either way, this leads us to a kind of new way of framing the Cambrian question. If the Cambrian explosion is characterized as this explosion of animal body plans, and especially those with hard body parts, why do the hard body parts show up? Like, where do they come from? Why evolve shells? And this leads us to another possible answer to the uh, to the cause of the Cambrian explosion. What if it was caused by a biological innovation like predation?
1: Oh, so like you, so you have all of these creatures that have uh, that have evolved, and then suddenly they realize, hey. We can just eat each other, right? I can I can just eat these guys. Why should I compete for the same uh, same meal uh-huh. when I can make them my meal? And then I'm essentially eating what they already ate.
0: Right. Why would I waste my time filter feeding when I can just eat Ted? over here? <laughs> yeah. So uh, Eric Sperling, the Stanford paleontologist, who is the lead author on uh, one of the papers I mentioned earlier in this episode, he explained in a Nature News article earlier this year Or actually, no, it was last year uh, that he thinks a very modest increase in dissolved oxygen could have been enough to push the 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 ocean chemistry over the edge to allow for the emergence of predation and carnivory as an ecological niche, which would have thereafter driven evolution across the animal spectrum as this arms race between predator and prey emerged. In a world of predators, you need shells and you need to be able to move. Okay. Yeah. All right, well this this sounds this sounds plausible and there's some evidence that this is what was happening. Here's an odd fact. Sometimes trilobite fossils are missing chunks. Not because the fossils have been damaged, but apparently because the animals were. One example, a specimen of the tril- uh, trilobite Olenoides found in Walcott's Quarry at the Burgess Shale has this distinct W shape missing from its left side as if something took this kind of two-fanged bite out of it. So in this alien ocean, and you have to imagine me uh, in the voice of Ripley and aliens who's laying the eggs, what's taking the bites? Out of these trilobites. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe
1: it's less dramatic if if you uh, put it that way, but but yeah, there's got to be something uh, something else out there, some sort of uh, a predator that is uh, that is chomping down on
0: these guys. And this leads us to the second monster in our Cambrian monster house, the weird shrimp.
1: All right, hold that thought because we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will we will get to know the weird shrimp, which is truly. Unless you're already, you know, super familiar with this time period, I would say it's the, the first really alien creature
0: uh, of the, the Cambrian period. All right, we're back. Okay. So in 1892, a British-Canadian paleontologist named Joseph Frederick Whitaves was trying to figure out how to classify some odd Cambrian fossils that looked like headless shrimp shells. Mm-hmm. You can look up pictures of these online, but um you could see these five hundred million year old imprints of these clawed tails and bodies, but the heads were always missing.
1: Yeah, they look kind of, they basically look like entrees,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like somebody pulled the head off the shrimp mm-hmm. and served it to you in a little cocktail glass. Yeah. Now he named the organism Anomalocaris, which means weird shrimp <laughs> or strange shrimp or odd shrimp, however you prefer. Meanwhile, Burgess Shale pioneer Charles Walcott, which, who is the guy who the Walcott's quarry at the Burgess Shale was named after, he collected and described a fossil of a different animal. These preserved remains only showed a large disembodied mouth, <laughs> a thick muscular ring shape surrounded by a circle of jagged teeth facing inward. And Walcott believed this mouth to be the remains of a jellyfish that he named Patoia.
1: All right, so this would be the mouth of an otherwise soft creature. That was his argument, and all we have left is the mouth.
0: Right. And it wasn't until many decades later that researchers Harry Whittington and Derek Briggs figured out that these two weird anomalous animals were weird and anomalous because they were different parts of the same creature. A huge Cambrian predator that retained the name of Anomalocaris. The weird shrimp were actually a pair of clawed appendages basically mouth tentacles, for snatching up prey and shoving it into the mouth parts. And the mouth parts were the toothy ring, which had previously been identified as Patoia. If you've never seen an image of Anomalocaris, this is another thing to look up. Well, or maybe we'll try to include a picture on the landing yeah, page, yeah, too.
1: yeah, we'll include a picture of this, this creature because it's too, it's too weird. If, if need be, we will draw one. And, uh, and upload it to the site.
0: It's sort of like impossible to make yourself believe that this thing really existed on Earth. But I've seen the fossils now. And uh so the reason these disembodied parts were originally misidentified was a common problem in paleontology. As we've mentioned several times now, fossilization is strongly biased toward hard body parts like shells and bones. Anomalocaris did not have a hard exoskeleton covering its whole body, but probably had a very light chitinous outer layer like a shrimp shell Mm on some parts of its body. And when it died and decomposed, its body probably fell apart into different pieces. And not all of those pieces were preserved at the same rate. So it's rare to find fossils that pres- preserve any information about soft body parts, and even rarer still to find soft bodies intact all in one place. Rare, but not entirely impossible, because since the original discovery of what amounted to Anomalocaris' killing equipment, more fully preserved Anomalocaris specimens have been discovered. For example, one fossil discovered in 1992 shows the spiked feeding arms branching off of the head within reach of the crushing mouth ring and all contained within the imprint of this elongated soft body lined with lateral lobes that probably undulated to power swimming. So if you're trying to imagine this thing right now, you have to picture a kind of wide, flat, lobed jellyfish snake (laughs) undulating along through the ancient seas with a gaping mouth ring on the underside that could squeeze with teeth but never fully close. And then sticking out of its face, a couple of hooked fang tentacles lined with spikes.
1: Yeah, this, this looks like a creature that belongs in a Star Wars cantina. Yeah.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah, it should be like having a drink and telling you yeah. it doesn't like you. <laughs> yeah. And it probably doesn't like you. Now, you're, you might be thinking, okay, so how big were these things, right? Like a few inches long. Parts found in fossil sites in China indicate that Anomalocaris type organisms may have grown to almost two meters long, which is around six feet. Oh wow. I, you know, people do those like booking a, a swim with the dolphins thing. Mm-hmm. I think people should book swim with the Anomalocaris. They should use some kind of DNA engineering to bring these things back. Well, you know, and then it... have you swim with them at the <laughs> resort.
1: Well, you know, if the predation explosion, uh, hypothesis is correct. Especially, I mean, this was, of eating other animals was a growth industry, so it, it, it does make sense that that the the successful model for eating other creatures would produce larger and larger uh, organisms, right?
0: Yeah. So, but the question, I guess, is if these things are preying on the you know the the widespread trilobites of the ancient seas, I don't know. Would they take a bite out of you if they could? Huh. Like, so you're in the water with them. You obviously don't look or smell like their normal prey. But then again, they might just want to see what you taste like. It's I mean, hard to know. We're,
1: we're, we kind of get into that whole uh, shark and gorilla uh, area. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but. I don't think so. Well, every time I go to the ocean, I comfort myself regarding the um, you know, risk or apparent risk of sharks and, and, of course, just shark media in general by thinking about the just like a brief clip on The Simpsons where a shark jumps out of the water and grabs a gorilla out of a tree, <laughs> uh, which is ridiculous for several reasons. Reasons, but it, it drives home like this is this is something that does not happen uh-huh. and is not part of the, uh, uh, the 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 energy model for either species. You know, right. uh, and, and and that's essentially what I am. I am a gorilla in the water, and the shark has not evolved to eat me exclusively. It can if need be. Yeah. But it's not out there looking for gorillas.
0: Right. It might have also, though, evolved a sort of like uh, prey diversity curiosity. It might True. take a little nibble on you to see what you're like.
1: Right, right. So I guess that would be the the main concern. But I'm guessing you would have this element of surprise. I don't, because uh, By the
0: way, I, I don't mean to be promoting like fear of sharks. Obviously, no, no, no. we're not their primary prey. right. But but I'm guessing with with humans,
1: if if, if we were to go with our opening uh, scenario and you were just dropped into the waters among these things, I would hope you would have this this uh, element of surprise over them,
0: and they would mm-hmm. be a bit shocked and uncertain and hesitant to approach you. So another thing that's really cool about Anomalocaris is that they have these amazing eyes. Uh, For a long time, detailed evidence of non-biomineralized arthropod eyes had been hard to find. But in 2011, there was a letter to Nature that detailed this amazing find at the Emu Bay Shale of South Australia. And what they had found was preserved anomalocaris eyes. And they found that they had a pair of two to three centimeter eyes, about 515 million years old, Uh, And they were compound eyes made of at least 16,000 hexagonally packed lenses, meaning these eyes would have been about as acute as the most powerful arthropod eyes today, like dragonfly eyes. And the authors think that this is – that this evidence of acute vision lends support to the idea that Anomalocaris was a powerful – fast moving apex predator uh, going all throughout the water column which and this would have accelerated the arms race that triggered cambrian biodiversity and biomineralization
1: you know this also this makes me wonder though would a creature like this have anything to fear
0: like, well i mean probably not i mean if yeah. it's the apex predator of an ancient ocean what it's the biggest thing out there and it's got the most powerful killing equipment what does it have to worry about?
1: Nothing until uh, you know the, the time traveling human shows up and starts clubbing them. I guess right. with that club they brought, you'd have to bring your own club. That's, right, that's a key here. But nothing dead will go. <laughs> ah, well, you know, maybe a still li- living
0: tree branch will work. Yeah. Oh yeah, maybe. That somebody should have told Kyle Reese about that. I guess oh, that wouldn't yeah. have been all that effective against a Terminator.
1: Yeah, where are they going to get a tree branch in the the the, the desolate post apocalyptic <laughs> future, right? <laughs>
0: Okay, we're on a tangent here. So, we're gonna look at some more, uh, Cambrian monsters, but one more thing about Anomalocaris before we move on. There is still a fascinating debate going on about how and what Anomalocaris ate. So, some of these wounded trilobites that we discussed earlier have injuries that really seem to match the two-pronged grasping appendages uh, of the anomalocaris and some experts believe that its mouthparts would not have been powerful enough to prey upon trilobites with their hard outer shells so that kind of creates a question like what was it? Was it eating something else? Uh, like, how could it have gotten through these hard outer shells? Mm-hmm. There are a few options. Maybe they maybe they were just really beefy and they could crunch through those shells. Maybe they had some method of prying the shells off of weaker trilobites and sucking up all the soft parts inside. Or uh, there's also an interesting possibility I learned about from the guide on our hike. David, maybe they took a tip from the the crab shack down the shore and they sought out soft shells,
1: oh, trilobites
0: okay. who were in the the process of molting. So you you release your hard shell, put that aside to be fossilized for people to find millions of years later, and then you stay soft for a little bit while you you know you grow. What if they sought those out, the molting trilobites and nom nom nommed?
1: Oh man, yeah. I mean that could be that could be the very uh uh niche that they are exploiting. When you turn to the model of, of, of eating other creatures, what better time than the molting period?
0: Yeah. OK. So the trilobites and anomalocaris type creatures are some of the main players that we see in, uh, in Cambrian evolution. But there are also all of these fascinating, bizarre periphery organisms like – Robert, would you like to take us on a tour of the rest of the Cambrian Monster House?
1: Sure. Yeah, we have some wonderful uh, uh, specimens here to discuss here, and uh, there's not there's not necessarily as much data behind all of them. I mean, there's data, but it's maybe not as, as sexy as the as trilobite. Uh, however, they, they still have some some fascinating uh, features, and I think many of them would make
0: excellent Halloween costumes. I would say they're much sexier than the trilobite, maybe just not as robust. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So the the first one here we want to discuss is um
0: opabinia. I've often called the stalk-eyed vacuum cinnabite. <laughs> That's a
1: good uh, description, uh, one that I think it evokes the the alien qualities of this creature. So it, if you're not looking at a picture of this right now on com, I want you to imagine something like a shrimp or a lobster – but with rows of side lobes along its sides, paddling along like the oars of a like a, a galley, okay, a, so like a Viking ship.
0: It's got these lobes on the sides, kind of like we described with the anomalocaris, right. that, that undulate to move it along throughout the water, right. And you know, it is
1: not that remarkable at the the end. Like I say, if you were just catching it, a glimpse of it out of the uh, the corner of your eye, the, the back portion doesn't look that different from again, like a lobster or a shrimp or something. But it's the the front end of the creature that is uh, is rather interesting because it has a long, flexible proboscis tipped with grasping spines. And the creature itself was about three inches long, not counting this uh, weird, cool, reachy tentacle.
0: Yeah, five eyes too, right? Five eyes on stalks.
1: Yes, five eyes just staring right at you. (laughs) On stalks. (laughs) It's like
0: (laughs) they put them on stalks. It's like just a mess with us.
1: Yeah, and I think this all sounds very Lovecraftian, but but according to the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, uh, a reconstructed image of the creature uh, resulted in laughter at a 1972 scientific meeting. So instead of looking at this thing, and thinking oh well, this sounds horrific it's like got this reaching arm that you know is up to no good with its spikes Uh on the end but yeah apparently when it was first presented uh uh, other uh, other scientists laughed at the prospect of something this ridiculous looking.
0: So you have to think. So it's got this reaching appendage that's sort of like its mouth appendage thing. Mm-hmm. So what sort of like a, maybe sort of like an anteater, I guess, but it's obviously not a vertebrate, not a mammal.
1: Yeah, it was uh, the idea here is that this, this would have uh, haunted the soft seabed, and it would have, would have reached into sand burrows with this uh this you know spike terminating uh, wriggly arm to. Grab delicious worms, mm. and uh, and I actually have a, a quote here. This is from H. B. Whittington from uh, the enigmatic animal Opabinia regalis, Middle Cambrian Burgess Shale, British Columbia. This was presented to the Royal Society. B quote. Opabinia regalius may have plowed shallowly in the bottom mud, propelled by movement of the lateral lobes. The eyes are presumed to have been capable of detecting movements in the surrounding waters, and the frontal process to have been used to explore the mud for food and bring it to the backward-facing mouth. The
0: frontal process, yes. that is the most amazing euphemistic term for killing equipment, <laughs> uh, and then they put the frontal process through the thorax
1: the way that my son uh describes it with the uh, animals when he's like drawing dinosaurs, he says uh, this is the part that makes the animal's eyes close and then die, <laughs>
0: <laughs> what? yeah,
1: so uh, you so know the
0: frontal process is the part that makes the trilobite's eyes close, yes. <laughs> So, uh, this is, a, but this is a cool
1: specimen. It's, it's unique, it's enigmatic, it's silly looking, but it's also, you have to admit, a very sensible organism when you uh-huh. really think about it. Um, it's, it needs something to grab those worms. It has a single, uh, you know, grabber to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's also interesting that this one remains un, unassigned to any other, uh, extinct or currently living major group. Uh, there, there are some theories, but for the most part, this is one of those, um, you know, abandoned prototypes you can mm-hmm. think of. You know, there's there there's nothing out there that, that we know of that is a descendant of this thing.
0: That's interesting because when I think about organisms like this, I think about the relationship between manipulation limbs and the evolution of intelligence. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one way of looking at the evolution of hominid intelligence, and it's to say that, okay, one thing that may have driven uh humans and other you know great apes to have larger brains and and more intellectual power than the average mammal is that they've got free limbs that they don't always have to use for walking and stuff like that to manipulate objects oh yeah and that the manipulation of objects allowed them to you know have advantages in the manipulation of tools and stuff like that
1: yeah it, it, you can't help but imagine like what if this had been the successful uh limb of of uh, of evolutionary ascension and then yeah. you've ended up with all of these different like monolimbed creatures yeah uh you know plowing about in the seas climbing up onto land and maybe getting to the point where they're using that that one spiky tentacle to to type on on computer keyboards
0: yeah uh yeah you see it in uh Octopi too you know oh, ha- yeah, having yeah. these free these free limbs that they can manipulate things with i wonder could opabinia if it hadn't gone extinct yeah could it have become the tool-using creature before there were even mammals. Yeah, but instead it just
1: remains this this weird dead end that looks it looks like if you decided to make an animal out of random Lego pieces, uh-huh. you know, and you stuck <laughs> that. Uh, I think they still have that that sort of twisty grabber uh, mechanism in the Lego kits today. All right. the The next creature on our list here uh, is the hallucigenia. Hallucigenia, well named. Yeah, it almost doesn't need a cool nickname, but I know you have one uh, thought up already. How about the creeping headless spike worm? Yes.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, that's because it, it, it that works because we're essentially looking at a tube of flesh with two rows of spines on one side and one row of mouth tipped tentacles on the other. Um, OK, <laughs> and on either end, if we're just keep in mind here, we're working from the the fossils here on either end. There's kind of a dark stain. Mm-hmm. Presumably, one of them is the head. And presumably the idea here is that or at least the early idea is that it walked about on those spines and it waved its tentacles above it. Uh, so you had this stilt walking tentacle waver, something with no modern uh, analogy, no. It, it, no modern analog. It, it looks like something that you would see illustrated in a Wayne Barlow alien uh, book. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Or like something um... – I don't know. It looks kind of like one of those blobs that sometimes shows up in a Gary Larson cartoon when he's just trying to create a weird alien shape. Yeah. I mean,
1: it looks like something that would come out of a dream, thus its name. You know, it's hallucinogenia. It's something that is uh, that that seems like a fever dream uh, brought to life in a fossil.
0: Now, I think this was first uh, first put together by paleontologists in the 70s. Right.
1: Right. And then they had uh, there was a subsequent find uh, from China that showed a similar creature with a second row of tentacles tipped with claws. And then they realized, oh, we have it upside down. The creature walked on the tentacles and the spikes provided an upward facing protective uh, array. So that's a lot. I mean, it's still a weird-looking critter, don't get me wrong, uh-huh. but that's a lot more in keeping as what we might expect. You know, that's not that different from, say, a turtle with legs on the bottom and the protective display on top or any, you know, various examples from the invertebrate
0: world. I don't know. If is that less weird? I'm trying to think. Okay, so – it's it's like a worm and mm-hmm. it's got these long tentacles with mouths on them that it walks on. Uh, yeah, I mean it's still weird. <laughs> and it's got spikes sticking up. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess a little less weird than walking on the spikes. Yeah,
1: I, I I guess it's kind of a fun experiment you can play anytime you see like a crazy alien illustration. Uh-huh. Try to decide is it more alien if you turn it upside down? <laughs> uh, because yeah, you can either improve upon the design or figure out how they came up with it to begin with. Maybe. Uh huh. All right, so. Uh, Let's talk about it a little bit bit more here. So, University of Durham invertebrate paleontologist Martin R. Smith, uh, who is an interesting chap, he has a nice online presence. Yeah, uh, he placed the the fossil of one of these creatures in an electron microscope in an attempt to you know figure out more about it. Mm-hmm. And one of the pressing questions was, namely, which which end is the head and which one is the anus?
0: Well, yeah, I mean that that sort of uh, I knew there was some problem with locating its head, and that mm-hmm. comes through in my name nomenclature of it, the headless, uh, right spike worm.
1: Now we mentioned the stains earlier, right? Uh-huh. Like basically from the fossils we knew, we knew that there was like a big stain on one end and a smaller stain on the other and one was presumably the head. So the larger stain was, was for a long time interpreted as a balloon-like head on this mm-hmm. creature. But it turns out it was very much a stain. It was the the quote decay fluids that had been squeezed out of one end of the guts of the organism. Gross. Yeah. So this was the anus, and the head was on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> and when they looked to the head, you know what they found? A uh, hockey mask. Close. They found a smiley face. No uh, way. Yeah, a pair of eyes with a semicircular grin. Uh, and so it was sort of like a, they say it was sort of like a caterpillar looking creature. Wow. Yeah. Now, when I say smiley face, it's, it's kind of abstract. I'm looking at an image of it here, but, but we can't help but look at it with our, uh, uh, with our human failings and say, oh, well, that's a smiley face.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hallucinogenia,
1: you devil, you. Yeah. So hallucinogenia is a fun one for sure. Stealing my heart. (laughs) Take me somewhere even weirder, Robert. Alright, well, the next one is Wiwaxia. Oh, boy. And, uh, I believe you, did you, did you come up with a name for this one or did I? I think this was you. Okay. I, I think I, I actually came up with a few different ones here. So, it looks kind of like a prehistoric Iron Maiden. It also looks like, a, an organic battle helm or perhaps a, a grimdark Pokemon. And it, <laughs> uh, it, it provides another splash of, uh, of the bizarre, uh, to the, the Cambrian Seas. So, two rows of long spines and a kind of plate mail armor of leaf-shaped ribbed plates, again, on something that looks like a hat. It, yeah. it looks like a spiked hat, like plate mail kind of scenario. I I, I can't stress the armor analogy enough.
0: You know, kind of like a half of a walnut with, with plate mail on it and knives sticking out.
1: Yeah, uh, it looks like something an orc would wear on its head. And uh a lot of the fossils here are essentially – that we have of this thing are essentially flattened remains of this natural armor because, mm-hmm. again, it's the hard parts that we're, we're left with and we just have to uh, try and interpret what the soft tissue would have consisted of. And there are different interpretations here. Now, Martin Smith, uh, who I just mentioned uh, earlier, he favors the mollusk interpretation. He says that their mouths, which would have been uh, a radula bearing two rows of teeth, have several similarities with the teeth of modern mollusks. And, uh, and, and they look nothing like worm teeth mm-hmm. uh, because that's the other argument is that these are um, essentially worm creatures. Uh, specifically, they would be bristle worms. But that's more of a, a controversial interpretation. Huh. So there's not a lot of depth for that particular organism, other than it just looks really strange. And when you when you see illustrations of the Cambrian Sea, uh, you will often find it'll it'll get in there somewhere. It won't be the central organism, uh, but it will it will have a place in the uh, in, in the in the
0: illustration. Now I've got a question, Robert. Yes. Among this ancient Cambrian monster house, this sea full of bizarre alien creatures, we have to imagine that modern day life forms can trace their roots back to organisms that inhabited these oceans, especially when you think about very successful modern uh, phyla like vertebrates
1: yeah because the whole idea here is not that like everything dies off and, and, and life begins anew uh, that some of these models would uh, would have descendants alive today, albeit you know rather different to organisms right and we have uh, just such a case with pacaya. Though
0: it's a controversial example, right?
1: Yes, yeah, this is not this is not set in stone, uh, though the fossils of course are. <laughs> uh, yeah, you you uh, referred to this as the ancestor fish slug uh-huh. or a potential a potential ancestor. so if, if you're not looking at an image of this creature, imagine a sea slug that swims like a modern fish and you've got a, a clear vision of Pacaya. Uh, or at least as clear a vision as anyone. Uh, the crazy thing about it is that, that scientists uh, point to its notochord, a precursor to the spinal cord, mm. and also a key aspect of this creature's swimming mechanics, as a reason that it could just be an ancestor of all vertebrates, including humans. But... We're also throwing a curve in all this because it has a two-lobed
0: head. Oh, that doesn't sound like any vertebrates I've ever heard of. Yeah, scientists
1: remain uh, split on this. Now, a 1999 discovery of a primitive fish in the lower Cambrian also suggests that it and uh, Pakea had an even more ancient common ancestor.
0: Okay, so it might be that this thing wasn't a direct ancestor of existing vertebrates, but that it might have been an offshoot of whatever was a direct ancestor of living vertebrates. Right.
1: And I think it'll make a great Halloween costume for anyone out there who's uh, who's not sold on the previous specimens. Grandma fish slug. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can just imagine it moving like you you, mm-hmm. you, you get used to seeing footage of sea slugs and, uh, and and similar creatures and the way they move, but this would have moved uh, if i'm if I'm reading it uh, correctly, more more like a fish, more like an eel. so yeah. imagine like a, an eagle slug, and that's what you have here.
0: Totally. Now, there's one more I I, I thought would be good to mention because it's got a slightly Lovecraftian face, right? Oh, yeah. Leon Coilia, the blind whip hunter.
1: Yes. um, It looks kind of – this one's kind of hard to explain, really, but, it, you know, it looks shrimpy. It looks a little flea-like, but imagine a blind monster that stumbles around in the murk just bull whipping everything in its vicinity – uh, with flails yeah. and then just really whipping the heck out of potential prey. So whips coming out of its face. Yes. And that's what we have with leoncolia. Now, we assume it was blind because we haven't found evidence of eye stalks yet, mm-hmm. which if and the thing, of course, is that given these previous examples, it's entirely likely that 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 could occur. At some point, a future f- uh, fossil find will reveal, oh, well, they did have eye structures and they look like this. But, uh, for the time being, the idea is that they were seemingly blind. It, uh, the creature here was about two inches long, and it's usually classified as an, uh, as an arthropod, though sometimes it's uh, thrown into the uh, arachnomorph subgroup, so which would connect it, you know, more to scorpions uh, and trilobites. But still, it's a fascinating creature to try and imagine, especially in this this changing time where uh, eyesight is coming online for various organisms and new uh, new uh, methods of exploiting uh, other organisms are becoming possible. And this one is just whipping things with its face yeah. until it can eat something.
0: Yeah. So I guess that's going to have to conclude our tour of the Cambrian monsters. But I I do want to ask you, Robert. So clearly we have not exhausted – all of the fascinating questions about the cambrian period and mm-hmm. the the emergence of biodiversity uh, animal biodiversity especially in the cambrian period so i want to ask you which of the cambrian explosion theories we've discussed today appeals to you the most obviously we haven't covered all of the possibilities there are other possible explanations out there, but what, 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 what strikes true to you? Like, what sounds right? Does it, could it have been sight as the thing that triggered all of this biodiversity or the innovation of predation and carnivory or the chemistry for biomineralization or is it just this sampling bias where, you know, maybe that there isn't as much bio innovation in this period as it seems just from the fossil record?
1: I mean, I guess I could play it safe and say a little bit of all of those, but, <laughs> yeah. But I guess I I tend to buy more into the the predation and and uh, sight arguments, mm-hmm. with some support by, uh, by by some of the additional arguments. But but those are the two that I guess feel like they have the most meat for me. But then again, I'm not a. I'm not a, a scientist, uh you know, uh, specializing in this time period. Right. Uh, but but those are the ones that I feel like are the most. Maybe it's just calling to the five year old in me. Oh yeah. It's the it's the, it's the explanation that involves uh, creatures warring with each other and battling each other, and therefore that's the one that I can imagine.
0: Yeah, it's hard to resist. Now I know I've heard, I think I read at some point that one of the arguments against uh, the sight hypothesis is just that sight doesn't generally matter in the water and especially in the deep water as mm-hmm. much as it does on land. I mean, not that it doesn't matter at all. It does. But that, uh you know, things like smell and hearing and stuff like that are more useful in the ocean. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure which I'm most convinced by. The predation one seems very interesting to me, that if animals weren't really – Capitalizing on getting their energy from other uh, more large-sized animals before, and suddenly they started doing that. That that could be, you know, a game changer. It's also kind
1: of a, an original sin type uh, scenario too. It feels right. very mythic, right? Like the that the first creature to figure out that it can it can prey on its fellow organisms, and how does that occur? Like obviously, it's it's not just a situation of one day uh this uh, this creature just takes a bite out of another one like it's going to be a more gradual process and uh you know and, and likely begins with some sort of gray area of competition for food yeah. like for instance a creature it becomes adept at stealing food from yeah. another. it, maybe stealing food from its mouth. Yeah. Then what happens if you steal food from another creature's belly?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, that that is the difficulty of, of this hypothesis is you have to imagine what's the process that gets you there by gradual evolutionary change. Right. Uh, even if it's geologically rapid, it still would have been gradual in biological terms. Um, try, trying to you know go from an organism, organisms that are all basically vegetarian, to some organisms eating other animals.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like another example that comes to mind is, of course, animals that will consume their own young or their own eggs. Mm-hmm. We've talked about you know so the, the parental cannibalism to sort of reabsorb, um, essentially lost energy. Yeah, and how that could s- seemingly be an avenue into the. Uh, uh, in, into, into predation. Yeah. Because if you're absorbing your own biomatter back into yourself, then it becomes a, less of a leap to absorb the biomatter of another.
0: I can also see a scavenging to predation route mm-hmm. that maybe, uh, the, the gradual changes that allow you to better and better ex- extract nutrition from dead animals that you find on the bottom of the ocean could eventually become useful in killing live animals. Right.
1: Right. Or you could just always do it and uh, an angel told you not to until a snake uh, suggested otherwise. (laughs) Just another possibility.
0: That could be it. Well, Robert, I don't. I don't get the feeling that we're done with the Cambrian period. I think we may come back here in the future to explore some other scientific issues. And, and there may be other things to discuss with the Burgess Shale as well.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and in general, I'd love to do some more episodes in the future uh, regarding prehistoric creatures. I feel like this is something we, we come back to uh, time and time again, Well, uh, at least on a, what, a, a bi-monthly uh, kind of pattern.
0: I guess so. I mean, it's it's the 7-year-old in me. I've like yeah. I've never gotten over how much I love dinosaurs and other weird organisms that don't exist today. It's it's part of my love for monsters and mm-hmm. it's part of uh, what keeps bringing me back to paleontology. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that.
1: Uh, but in, in the meantime, definitely check out stufftoblowyourmind.com. I'll check out the landing page for this episode because again, I'm going to try try to include images, illustrations of fossil representations, whatever I can find for each of the organisms presented here so you can have some additional visual idea of what we're talking about. And I'll include links uh, back to some of our other episodes that have dealt with prehistoric organisms.
0: And if you want to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other or to suggest a future episode topic you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com